chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Now, for the past two weeks, we split up because we were talking, you know, about some pretty sensitive things here in 1 Corinthians. Okay, so then if we're not supposed to be sexually immoral people, if we're to live a particular style of life as a believer, then how, how do we do this? What, what does God give us to be able to do the things that he calls us to do? And so as we think about something like maybe in your Bible, it says above chapter seven, it has the heading principles for marriage. So you may be thinking, even as a high schooler, you may be thinking, I don't really think about marriage at all. And that's really good, especially if you're very young, because you don't really need to be thinking a whole lot about marriage at this point in your life anyways. But you do need to know what the Bible says about marriage and why it says what it says. So as you think about what we're about to read and look at, I want you to ask yourself this question, what does God want me to know? So you may not be a married person, you may not even be close to being a married person, but the question still remains, what does God want me to know from this? Because he hasn't given 1 Corinthians chapter 7 just for people who are old or people who are married. He has given his word to all of us. And so you can actually come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in a youth group and preach it to students because there are things that God actually wants us to know from this, even if we are, you know, a sixth grader, for instance. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, and then we will dive in, and I'll try to move through this pretty quickly. Um, there are a few parts that I want to hone in on for you as a youth group, and then next week we will be looking at something that relates very specifically to us, um, or you rather. I am, um, I am not a single person. I am a married person. But next week will be a lot about single people. And so I'll make a few little things tonight, and then we'll look more next week. But starting in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, and that means single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, that is single people, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. That is, you can accept that divorce. Verse 16, 
For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, I have four things, uh, but before that, let me pray. Father God, help us to see, Lord, what it is you want us to know from this text. Help us to understand that, Father, these are things that we may not be applying specifically tonight to our lives, but every passing day we get a little older, and in the blink of an eye, we will look back and think, oh my goodness, I was a sixth grader, or I was a senior in high school, and before you know it, we're all old. And so, Father, help us to realize that these truths that you give us, even on a night like tonight, are things that you give us, not only for today, but for all of our life as a believer. And so help us to see these things clearly. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so the first point is this, the proper way to fight the temptation of sexual immorality. Okay, so we talked a lot about don't be a sexually immoral person, right? So don't like give yourself over to your passions. Okay, so that's fine. But like, how exactly are we supposed to do that? We can obviously say no, we can obviously fight sin, we can have tactics and strategies and all of these things. But what happens when those things don't work as well as we think they might? Like, what, what are we to do? Is there an answer? And so as we read this, Paul seems to be indicating that there is a confusion in the church in Corinth. So they think, okay, sexual immorality is bad. Check. That is true. Good job, Corinth. But then they come to this conclusion, okay, well then, isn't sex bad? And Paul says, no, that's not the case. So what Paul, or what the church in Corinth is saying is, if sex is so dangerous, then, then we just shouldn't do it. Let's just skip that completely. And so what you have is you have this church, husbands and wives even, saying, okay, well, that's just not a part of who we are. That's not a part of marriage. We're not going to do that. And Paul is saying, no, 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 slow down. I'm not saying sexual immorality is having sex. I'm saying sexual immorality is sexual immorality. So we need to start at the beginning, right? This is the importance of letting the Bible inform our views. Believers, we always have this thing where we kind of think things are true, and then we kind of make the Bible agree with what we think. And so that's what the church in Corinth did, and so Paul is pushing back on that. And so what he's really saying is that sex is only wrong when we abuse it. So one of the things that we don't want to miss is that Paul is saying that sex is actually a gift. It's something that he gives to us, and God's gifts are, are always good. And one of the points of this in particular, sex within a marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, is that it is actually a means of fighting the sin of sexual immorality. And so in a way, at the most basic level, the relationship of a, of a husband and a wife is a relationship that should make us more like Jesus. So I think sometimes we just, I mean, especially when you're young, you just look at your mom and your dad, and they're just your mom and your dad. But God has given that relationship for so much more than just them being your mom and dad. At the most basic level, the relationship that your mother and your father has is primarily to make them more like Jesus. And a part of that is your parents fighting sin together, and that relationship is given to them to help them fight sin. And so one of the ways God grows us in the image of Jesus Christ as husbands and wives is living together as husbands and wives, being able to look at one another and say, hey, I don't think that was really the best way to talk to the kids. You know, like maybe we need to apologize to them. Maybe we were a little too harsh or, hey, maybe we're too easy on our kids. We're letting them run all over us. 
And a mom and a dad, they, they sharpen one another. And they point each other to Jesus, and they come together, and they are more like Jesus. And in particular, when it comes to fighting sexual immorality, God has given this relationship for that. So that's kind of the base level. So what he's saying is, if you want to fight sexual immorality, one of his good gifts to do that is being married. Okay? But there's some things we have to do before we get there, because um, if you are a sixth grader, for instance, and you come back and you're like, hey, Tyler, guess what I did over the week? And you say, I got married, I'm going to lose my mind. So don't do that. But before he goes on, though, he actually says, I wish all of you were like me. And what he means by that is, I wish, I wish all of you were single. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But the second point is this, a short reminder of what is most important. Okay, so whether we're talking about being married or whether we're talking about being single or whether we're talking about something like sex, one thing Paul wants us to realize above all things is that every one of these things is secondary to what is most important in your life. You being married or you being single or this idea of sex, all of those things are secondary to what is most important. And that is this. God gives us good things. God gives us gifts not just for us to enjoy, but for His glory. So every position that God puts you in is a, is a means to serve Him and to bring glory to His name and to worship Him, right? And so all of the things that happen to us in life, all of the, the good, like even this church, for instance, God did not give us this church just so we could come here and be comfortable. Sometimes, though, we think that's the reality of God's gifts. These are for me to enjoy. It's, it's kind of like sometimes, you know, we, um, we give our kids gifts, even silly things like Big League Chew or something, and we're like, hey, Max, um, man, it'd be awesome if you could take this and share it with your brothers. And he's like, but it's mine. <laughs> yeah, 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 but we gave it to you. We gave it to you so, you know, you can enjoy it, but you could also bless your brothers. The gum could be a way you could make your brothers happy why would I want to do that, <laughs> right? That's who we are. The good things God gives us, we think they're all about us. We end up taking those things and we're like, ooh, all of my gifts, right? You become like Smeagol and you've got the ring and you're like, my precious. And it's like, well, yeah, but maybe God gave you this so you could serve other people. And we're like, my precious, right? <laughs> gifts are not just for our enjoyment. They're, they're for God's glory primarily. And so I think the question for us as we're thinking about this right now is, how are we using the season of life that we're in to honor God? So when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you're thinking, well, I'm not married. Like, why are we even talking about this? Okay, but marriage is a gift from God and singleness is a gift from God. So the question for us then is, what are you doing with this season of your life? Like, that's a really basic question for us to be asking. Because you're not where you are right now, whether you're a sixth grader or an eighth grader or a ninth grader, or a tenth grader, twelfth grader, by mistake. And you're not just waiting for like the moment where you can finally become a good Christian and serve the Lord. No, that's you right now. So how are you using your season of life, your influence, your sphere to honor the Lord? And for, for you, are you using this season to fight sexual temptation? Do you realize that right now God has not called you to be married? He has called you to singleness. So are you fighting sin? That's a part of this season for you is fighting sin and one of the biggest being sexual immorality. One of my biggest regrets in, in high school in particular is just how much time I spent pursuing relationships with girls, like just trying to date girls, right? Ooh, someone even giggled. 
whatever, I liked girls, okay, get over it. But one of my regrets is how much time I spent pursuing these relationships. Now, I'm not saying like I did a bunch of bad stuff. I'm saying as I look back on my life in general, I really regret how much time I spent trying to find a girlfriend. You know, one of the things that we could walk away from from the past three weeks and this week is thinking, man, you know, the biggest temptation that I have, the biggest danger that I have is messing up sexually. That's the big danger. But I, I don't want us to like think that as long as we don't do that, we're okay. I, I don't want you to think that way. There's actually a much more subtle temptation that's really bad as well. And that is focusing all of our attention on pursuing earthly relationships and failing to pursue the Lord. The reason I regret trying to date girls in high school, I just was consumed with pursuing these relationships. But what I didn't realize that I realize now is that the one relationship that would actually give me fulfillment in life was the one relationship I wasn't pursuing day to day. And that is my relationship with the Lord. You know, I, I don't want you guys to just walk away thinking, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm not having sex. I don't ever plan to do that until I'm married or whatever you might say. And you might just walk away thinking, yeah, none of this really related to me. It didn't pertain to me. I'm good to go. But if you are pursuing relationships here on earth, instead of pursuing the Lord, you're still missing what God has for you. You're, you're still missing out on the gift of, of singleness. And in reality, you're pursuing relationships that will never actually satisfy you. You'll, you'll never find what you're looking for in a relationship here on earth. And the reality is, is that's true for once you even get married. My marriage is one of the greatest relationships I have on this earth. That and with my, my children. It means the most to me. It's the thing that I would literally for sure give my life up for, but it still doesn't compare at all to my relationship with the Lord. And my wife would tell you exactly the same thing. I let my wife down and Jesus never does, ever. And we can spend all of this time pursuing things that are actually only causing us to forget that there is a greater relationship that we must pursue, whether we're single or married or whether our spouse dies when we're 90 years old we will still always be called to pursue the Lord. All right, so what is the answer for single people? So he talks about single people now, and then he talks about married people. What is the answer for single people? So the third point is how to be a single Christian. I do want to make a side note, because we live in a culture, and I was raised in this culture, a, a dating culture. I was allowed, because I lived in an unbelieving family, to start dating basically when I was in like the second grade. That's not even a real thing you can do. But I would be on the phone with these girls in the second grade, and the next thing you know, I had 14 girlfriends, and it's like, what is even happening? Well, what I want to tell you biblically is that it doesn't matter if you are single and a second grader or single and 35 years old. According to the Bible, if you are not married, you are functionally and biblically single. That's not really like a popular thing. Because our society says, well, as long as you're committed to that person, then you're committed to that person. Well, that's okay. If you're committed, that's fine. But if you're not married, you're not allowed to act like you're married. So that's one reason why people who have been dating for 30 years still can't have sex. Because if you're not married, you do not have the rights of a married person. And so if you're here and you're 16, 17, 18 years old, and you're like, oh my gosh, I just love that person so much. We are just so committed to one another. That's fine. You're not married. You are not a married person. And it's really important that you understand that. 
All right, so how to be a single Christian. Well, before we talk about that, I, I think we need to ask the question, what actually is the purpose of singleness? So does singleness even have a purpose, or is it just kind of like the first necessary step to getting married? So sometimes we look at singleness and just think, that's just the thing you have to do before you get married, right? So verse 7, look again. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Right, he's talking about being single. But then he says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So one of the things I want you to know in particular is that singleness is not just a relationship status. Singleness is a gift from God. Singleness is not just something that identifies something about you. It is something that God has gifted to you. Why is that important? It's because God hasn't just given you this season of singleness as a thing about you. It's a, it's a gift. You have like a unique freedom in this season of your life to serve God and to serve other people. There, there's a purpose for the, the singleness that you are in right now. So let me explain what I mean. You have a freedom that I don't have. Do you want to know what happens to me? Most weekdays and sometimes on the weekends, not Sundays typically, but do you want to know what happens to me at 7.30 almost every day of my life? I have to put children in bed. Do any of you put children in bed at 7.30? Anybody? No. Maybe some of you help, right? Do you have the option of not doing it? Correct. I do not. Do you want to know why? Because they won't go to bed. In your season of singleness, you have a particular freedom that those of us who are married do not. I'm limited what I can do even as a pastor because of my wife and because of my family. Now, those are things God has given me to care for. That's a ministry that I have, is ministering to my family, ministering the gospel to them. But my time is limited because of where I am in life. So what should you be doing in your singleness then? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. Not wasting your singleness. Don't live your life just thinking, man, and maybe this is mostly girls, I don't know, but like thinking, man, you know, someday I'm going to marry this awesome guy, and it's going to be so great, and my life will be so much better than it is now. Or maybe some of you guys are like, man, I'm going to marry this wonderful woman, and you're just thinking, someday when I'm not single. But the reality is, is God has gifted you this time in your life to serve Him. He's given you the ability to spend very late nights with friends. He's given you the ability to not have to care for other people most of your day. And so what I would say is if you're a single person, I think you should ask the question, like, how can I give this season of my life to be at God's disposal? How can I give myself over to His purposes? And again, if you're in the sixth grade, you should still be asking yourself that question. These are not questions. This is not a sermon for adults. It's for you guys. You should be asking the youngest person in here, how can I give myself in this season of life to serve the Lord. It is not a mistake that you are here tonight and that you are in the sixth grade or the seventh grade or the eighth grade. You are where you are because it is what God has given to you. And so finally, number four, how to be a married Christian. The first thing is this, how to be a married Christian. Remain faithful to your spouse because marriage is a commitment to serve God. So one of the reasons Paul talks about staying with an unbelieving husband or staying with an unbelieving wife is once again, marriage is not just primarily for a man and woman's enjoyment. I don't just get to enjoy my wife. 
Like I don't just get to go home and say, hey, what do you want to watch tonight on Netflix? The kids are in bed. This is awesome. Now we can hang out. We can have popcorn. We can eat all the the leftover cake from Calvin's birthday party on Saturday. Being an adult is awesome. And basically we're just having an awesome sleepover and we're acting like children. That's a huge perk, but that's not primarily what marriage is about. Getting to act like teenagers again when your kids go to bed. But the reality is, is that's only secondary, once again, to us serving the Lord and growing in the image of Christ together, right? We are sharpening one another. The other part of marriage is that it is a way to disciple one another, but sometimes it's also a way to evangelize. What he's saying is that if you're a married person and you find out that you've married an unbelieving person, a part of this marriage is showing the gospel to them every day, pointing them to Jesus. And the reason being is because this relationship is so powerful that God is saying that unbelieving spouse through you might actually come to know the Lord. They might actually come to have a relationship with Jesus because of you. And so if you're a married person, your first act is to be committed to God and to be committed to your spouse. That's how to be married. But marriage is actually way bigger than we give it credit for, right? God uses marriage to show his love for us. So a marriage is meant to be a gospel ministry, right? In my marriage, you should actually be able to see Jesus. I mean, there there have actually, there, there have been times when I hope you've seen the way that I treat my wife and the way I talk about my wife as a clear indication of my love for her. And sometimes it can be the weird youth pastor thing where you're like, please stop talking about Chelsea. We know she's beautiful. Please stop telling us, right? But she is. She's so pretty. I hope that you see in the way I treat my wife, my love for her. The reason that's important is because that speaks of the gospel that I say I believe. The marriage is a picture of Jesus's love for his church, his bride. And the way that I, as a husband, treat my bride should speak to my relationship with my husband, Jesus. I'm a part of his bride. And so my marriage should be a ministry, not only to my wife and to my children, but to you guys, to the people at the ball field that we're around, to the people on Facebook that we're friends with. Right? They should never see me belittling or, or being mean to my wife. They should see that I love her because it's an expression of Jesus's love for me. Now, the final thing I want to deal with here is divorce. So he, he talks about divorce only in one like moment here, and he basically says, if you have an unbelieving spouse, whether you're the husband or you're the wife, and they leave you, you can be at peace. So what does he mean? He, he's saying, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they abandon you, then you are free to divorce them. But now I want to say, as a general principle, the Bible tells us not to divorce. All right, so we're going to end. Matthew chapter 19, I believe. So I want to hear Jesus say one thing on this. Because some of you come from a divorced families. Maybe some of your parents are in the midst of a divorce. So I want you to understand what the Bible has to say about this. So Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, right? There's that sexual immorality again. Marriage is supposed to be a safeguard against that. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So what he's saying is you should never divorce. 
But if an unbelieving spouse leaves you, you're okay. The other option is if your spouse is unfaithful to you, you are then free to divorce them in that instance as well. So the Bible, when it talks about divorce, gives us two categories for a biblical divorce. One is abandonment, and one is um, sexual immorality on the part of one spouse. But here's the caveat I want to give you as we close. And here's where the gospel helps us to think through these things very clearly. Even in those instances, as a pastor, my counsel is always, if you are able to forgive that person and pursue reconciliation in that relationship. Why is that? Because if you think about the gospel, like if you think about if you claim to be a believer, that means you're a part of Jesus's bride. He is our husband. We are so unfaithful to him so often. I mean, just think about your day today or this past week. If you had to like tally the number of times you sinned, maybe grievously or even little subtle ones where you're like, yeah, I'll give that a half tick. That's a full tick sin. You're like tallying these things up. We are so unfaithful to God. He died for us and yet we still sin and he still loves us. And so while the Bible does give us these categories for being able to justly divorce, it's a really great witness to the gospel to try to seek and reconcile ourselves to unfaithful people. Now you don't have to do that. That is not a command, but it really speaks something of the gospel. We can extend grace and seek to be reconciled to people who are unfaithful to us. Now that's not always going to work, but sometimes, and even in this church, I've seen it work and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel and God's grace and his mercy and his loving kindness to people who don't deserve it. And so those are the two categories of divorce that he gives us. But as we just think about the gospel, and someday I hope you don't have to think through this, but someday you may, extending grace is really difficult, but it's always a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us when we didn't deserve it.